You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Gordon Van Gelder is the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Thank you for joining me, Gordon. My pleasure. Gordon, tell us about the very first time you in your life ever saw an issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. I don't know that I could tell you the first, the exact first time. Uh, I know I started subscribing to it around the time I was 14, and I'm pretty sure the first issue... I think it was a 1981 issue with um, Phyllis Eisenstein's In the Western Tradition in it. Wow, that's a, that, that's kind of a, an interesting landmark. So um, once you saw this magazine and started uh, subscribing to it, uh, tell me what you were doing at that time and how that kind of influenced your, your way, the path that led you to end up as the editor. Well, it, like I say, it's hard to, hard to remember specifically. I know my brother got a subscription, maybe even a charter subscription, to Asimov through one of those um, publishers' clearinghouse coupons that cut out the little uh, stamp things. So I know we had Asimovs around the house before I was even 13. Around the time I was 14 or 15, I sold a story to Terry Carr for uh, 100 Great Fantasy Short Short Stories. And I do remember that I took the money I got from that and used it for a three-year subscription to FNSF which I remember at the time was 35 bucks, which is, or actually it was 36 bucks. And of course, one year now is 35. Now, um, uh, let's, let's move forward and, and talk about um, your taking over the reins from, from Ed Furman. Tell us about how that happened and how you felt when, when, that, when you had that opportunity. Well, it, it happened um, in late 90s, 98 or 99, Ed came into Manhattan, and we had lunch, and he said, you know, I had a heart-to-heart with my daughter. She made it clear that, you know, she said, I love you guys, but I don't want to get into the family business. <laughs> and Ed laughed and said, having gotten into the family business myself, I could understand that. And he said, so, you know, we're looking to retire and trying to figure out what to do with the magazine, and I doubt you'd be interested, but I have to ask anyway, do you think you might be interested in buying the magazine? So you actually bought it? Oh yeah, I bought it. Oh wow, there, there, there's, that's fascinating. Well, well, tell us about. So once, once you decided to buy it, um, did you know what you were going to do with it, or how you were going to take, where you were going to take it, or have any sense of where you might end up? I had it all mapped out in, in my head from that day until now, and if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you too. <laughs> no, in fact, I, I had various things planned once I bought the magazine that very quickly became, it was obvious, would not work. There were 
other things I planned that I may still do someday. <laughs> but after you know, I bought the magazine in October of 2000. Mm-hmm. And it took about a year to get the whole deal done and get financing and everything. After I bought the magazine, I sort of made a resolution that I wasn't going to change anything for about a year until I really felt I understood how to run the magazine. Um, that was, what, nine years ago now almost. I'm still not sure I really understand how to run the magazine, but I, I do at least feel confident enough to make some changes. In that first year, though, there were some things I'd hoped to do that I scrapped pretty quickly. Um, you know, I was coming over from book publishing, mm-hmm. and one of the first lessons I had to learn is just how different books and magazines are. Mm. Uh, you know, from the book publishing side of things, it didn't seem all that different. But when I looked at it, you know, wearing the magazine publisher's hat, it looked to me like there were two parallel rivers, but one was running upstream and one was running downstream. Mm-hmm. So it, it, <laughs> you know, they just don't run in the same direction and they don't work the same way. And so once I figured that, it, it changed a lot of the things I was hoping to do. Well, well that, that's an interesting a- analogy. So in what way do you do you think they run in different directions? Uh, give, give, give us some insight into your discoveries, you know, you know your, your learning process as an as a, as a right. editor of a magazine. Magazines, you know, especially on the newsstand, are, are not meant to last. Mm. You know, they're basically meant to be disposable. Whereas books, and especially hardcovers, but paperbacks too, are at least meant to go out there and stay out there for a while. Um, one of the things my distributor said to me the first time we had lunch, I can't quote it exactly, but he said something like, my boss gets on our back if we, you know, we do anything to encourage the magazines to stay out there any longer than their specified period. You know, in, in other words, he made it clear that <coughs> they want everything in the magazine business, they want it to be quick in, quick out, get your money and get out of there. Well, you know, that's interesting because one of the things when I look at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction now, I think of it as kind of like a a, a regular anthology that, yeah. that's definitely worth keeping. Yeah, that, that, I've all, it's always been designed that way. And Lord knows we have a lot of people who collect the magazine. And it, it's, it's one of the reasons I think that we're considered a niche publication, aside from the fact that we publish just to science fiction and fantasy. We don't we're not the sort of typical terrain of magazine publishing right now. It turns out someone I knew from college was the editor of a men's magazine for a while. I think it was Maxim. And at a, I saw him at a reunion. We were swapping notes for, for five seconds. And it was clear that almost everything he picks up, or he picked up in his trade, runs counter to what we do here at FNSF. Really? That's really interesting. <laughs> they want every magazine, every issue to be same thing all over again to each reader, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which we do too, but we have more continuity. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one of the big differences. Um, and it, the whole issue of disposability, you know, most magazines that you find in the supermarkets and on the newsstand are essentially built to be disposable. They don't want you re- maintaining them. Um, it, it, you know, I, I get two dozen magazines through, that come through here, and I'm always looking at them. And if you look at, say, men's, men's health and fitness magazines or women's cooking magazines and the home, home decorating magazines, none of the articles there are meant to be definitive. <laughs> um, and almost all of them, essentially they're all meant to be replaced in them. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so you don't find any of these things. Here's everything you need to know about this subject for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Because then they don't have another magazine to sell you the next month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, that that's a different mindset from you because you're actually publishing stuff that's has stood and will stand the test of time. I mean, you, it must be interesting to, to run a concern that's as old and as uh, venerated and as venerable as this and still is. It is, and it, you know, it, it's great. It can occasionally be a burden. Mm. We still get letters occasionally from people who um, did something for the, with the magazine in 1954, and <laughs> they, have, <laughs> they expect us to know what, what, what happened to it then or, or you know, whatever happened to this thing from 1955. I'll tell you, when I took over initially, it was daunting. That first month in October of 2000, I remember I actually had panic attacks, which mm-hmm. I've never had before or since. And I would just sit there and stare at the little number, the clock function in the corner of my computer and just watch the numbers tick off. And I finally got over it by say, looking at things. Well, it was two things. One, I talked to Betsy Mitchell, uh, Bet, sorry, Betsy Wolheim, but Daw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I said something like, um, how long does it take before you get settled in and you have an idea of what you're doing? And she said, you mean you you have, think you'll have an idea of what you're doing? <laughs> and the other thing, around that same time, I, I sat down and said, okay, what's the worst thing that happened? The magazine goes bankrupt. I won't, I'll have to wind up working at McDonald's for the rest of my life in order to pay off the debt. And one of the great institutions of our field will be dead. That's it. You know, it's <laughs> No <not> problem. Like, <laughs> right. It's not like hundreds of people will die from it. It's not like the roof will come crashing in. It's not that big a calamity in the end. And once I could put it in that perspective, things started to roll. Well, one of the things I think that you've really done is to, um, your editorial selection has really, I think, uh, expanded the boundaries of what used to be considered genre fiction. And I, I'm constantly struck by the number of stories in your magazine that, to my mind, might just equally be, well, be happy, have a happy home in The New Yorker. <laughs> and there's a, a real literary streak and an experimental streak in, in the magazine. And I think that really serves uh, both the magazine and the genre well. I'm interested to hear you say that because it's something I monitor very closely. And it really doesn't come from me so much as the writers. Mm-hmm. Ever since Bradbury and Heinlein appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, there's been a lot of tension among, in the, among the writers in the field about getting mainstream attention versus being a genre writer. Go on about that forever. <clears throat> For purposes of running the magazine, I've always taken it to heart that the title of the magazine is the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. What I've found, though, in reading the submissions, and it's been a curious thing in the last six, eight, nine years or so, is that a lot of stories come in that do not have any specific fantastic or science fictional content, but they work better in our magazine than, they, than I think they would in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there's one case of a story I read ran in 2002 by Michael Blumline, mm-hmm. and I, it might have some fantastic element to it. It depends on how you look at it. All the narrative tension in the story is derived from the question whether or not it's going to be fantastic. Mm. So it, it's not... <laughs> You know, it, it's almost a literary game in that is it going to go in which is it going to go in this direction or isn't it? If it ran in the New Yorker, I don't think the story would have the same tension, and I don't think it would be as good to read. Mm. Well, now as at the helm of of the premier um, uh, magazine of science fiction and fantasy, uh, what do you see as your future, both in print and elsewhere? Uh, well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. I see the magazine as remaining as being a print magazine. We've had an electronic edition, at least one electronic edition for 
eight or nine years, maybe more. I like the electronic edition. I don't see us ever getting away from the print edition, though. And I study this closely, and I like webzines, but I think they just operate on two different a model. And honestly, I'm not sure I like the models I've seen for them. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's a whole panel discussion to get into that. And in fact, I've, I've been on panels on the subject, and I don't think they resolved anything either. I think the web is still in the mimeograph era. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. it I think it, it's more complicated than that. Mimeograph never had the kind of widespread distribution that, that the Internet can get. Um, but it has that home-baked feel. Doesn't it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen websites that give every appearance of being professionally funded, yeah, essentially being professional publications. Mm-hmm. Then you look at their practices and they're completely amateurish. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen professional um, websites that look amateurish even though they're not, even though they're run by pros. And the whole model is so complicated. You know, you know, just the news just broke a few weeks ago that Jim Bain's universe is going to fold after what, about three years or so. Mm. And I thought they had a brilliant mo- model for making a webzine work financially, and it didn't seem to work. <laughs> you know, then I look at some of these long-running webzines and how they're succeeding, and I think it's great that they're succeeding. But every time I look at it, I say, you know, giving away fix- your main product for free online is just not a viable business model. Mm. You know, it's a good marketing ploy. It it can work in conjunction with another business aspect or enterprise. I just don't think it's going to be an end in itself for a magazine. Well, I don't see the magazine of fantasy and science fiction coming to an end anytime soon, especially under your editorship. I think it's, you know, continues to garner awards and really define and redefine the genre with every issue. Well, thank you. It's not my plan, but, you know, if it works out that way, great, because it does mean that that every issue is doing something different and and essentially pushing a boundary or or challenging readers some way. I've been speaking with Gordon Van Gelder. He's the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in its 60th anniversary this year. Thank you for joining me, Gordon. Oh, my pleasure. Speaking with Ellen Klages, she's the author of Green Glass Sea and White Sands Red Menace. Thank you for joining me, Ellen. Thank you, Rick. Um, I'd like to tell you to tell me the very first time you saw a copy of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Do you remember? Oh, it would probably have been around 1994, um, 1993 maybe, uh, the first time, whenever Worldcon was in San Francisco. Uh, that was my first introduction to science fiction. Um, I was working at the Exploratorium with Pat Murphy, uh, who had published in FNSF, and uh, went to dinner with her and a bunch of people when the Worldcon was in San Francisco. And that that and FNSF were my introduction to science fiction. Well, now, um, could you tell me about the first story that you had published in fantasy and science fiction and what that meant to you as a writer? Well, I've only had one. Um, so it, it's the first, the first, and so far only. Um, it's basement magic, and it was my first, first time actually. It's still only major magazine sale, so it was a big step up um, for me as a writer. I think at that point I had 
maybe three or four stories published in small magazines and anthologies. So FNSF was, was hitting the big time. Um, and then the story went on to win the Nebula. So it was definitely made my career as a short story writer. Well, tell me, what do you think the magazine of fantasy and science fiction means to the science fiction and fantasy community? Um, well, I think it's, it's where, you know, the, um, not only some of the best stories get published, but also it, it has the, the widest audience, um, probably you know, along with Asimov's, of, of any, any magazine um, in the field. Uh, it's it's pretty much pretty much it for um, you know big circulation um, science fiction and fantasy and I think Gordon's got such a good eye or ear um, for the kind of stories that people will like that you know that every time you you open the magazine there's going to be something that's going to knock your socks off. Now, is there anything you'd like to say to uh, Gordon Van Gelder or and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction on the occasion of this their 60th anniversary? I, well, happy anniversary, and, and thank you, Gordon, uh, and I hope it continues for another 60 years. I've been speaking with Ellen Klages. She's the author of Green Glass Sea and White Sands Red Menace. Thank you for joining me, Ellen. All right. Thanks, Rick. It's been good to talk to you. is the author of Soldier of Sidon, Latro in the Mist. His new novel is An Evil Guest. Thank you for joining me, Gene. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Gene, I, I'm going to ask you if you can remember the very first time you ever saw an issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. No, I, I can't. I know that I subscribed way, way back before I started writing. Uh, it was probably shortly after I got out of the Army, because I, that was the first time that I had any money to speak of at all, really. Uh, so it was probably just about that. But uh, other than that, I can't tell you. I was in the habit, I had been in the habit for a long time of, of picking up uh, science fiction magazines at the drugstore and so forth, newsstand. And uh, I probably came across an issue there. I know that by the time I graduated from college, uh, I was already reading it. That would be 1956. Well, that's that's a, a, that's an impressive run of, of reading this magazine. Now, um, you graduated from college, you were reading the magazine, Tell me about the first story you had published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, that, that was unforgettable by me, anyway, for two reasons, really. Uh, the story was a little piece called Car Sinister, which was basically about a pregnant ram rambler American. And uh, I should explain here, I'm sorry for the stammering, I should explain here that at that time I had probably been writing 
successfully. I had probably been selling for close to 10 years. Mm. Uh, it was largely uh, a short story here and a short story there. But I had been uh, hitting a lot of markets, and I had been selling quite steadily to Damon Knight's orbit and so on. And uh, I had not been able to sell to fantasy and science fiction, which was my own favorite magazine. And that was galling, of course. Mm. And I had sent them probably a dozen stories uh, at that time without ever getting an acceptance. Uh, also, I should tell you that my wife was kind of looking askant still at my writing. Mm. Uh, I was working full-time as an engineer. Uh, we had four children, and I was writing in the basement when I could, which usually meant early in the morning before I, I ate breakfast and went to work. So uh, this came in, and I got a check for $60, which is probably equivalent to about $200 today in purchasing power. Uh, this was uh, end of the 60s, late 60s. Mm. And uh, my wife had been after me for money for uh, clothes for the kids, uh, school clothes. School was about to begin again, you know, late August, early September. And three of her four kids were old enough to go to school, and they needed new clothes for school. And I had been saying they're not going to get them because we don't have enough money for it. We've just got enough money to pay the utilities, put food on the table, and make the payment on a mortgage. And that's it. They're going to have to go to school in the clothes that they've got now. So I got this check, 60 bucks, right? And uh, instead of putting it in the bank, which is what I usually did, depositing to our checking account, I went to the hardware store where I knew the manager. I got him to cash the check for me. I got three $20 bills. I took them back. I gave them to Rosemary and said, look, here's every dime I got for that story. Now, you've got this much money to buy new clothes for the kids. Wow. And a few days later, I was gluing together an old wooden kitchen chair. You know how kitchen chairs get loose and the, mm -hmm. the rungs rattle and all that wooden kitchen chairs. And this was in that kind of shape. And so I was pulling things apart, working glue in the joints, uh, putting rope around things, you know, and twisting a stick in it to tighten up the rope and so forth. Uh, the stuff that you do to repair one of these things. And Rosemary came up behind me and said, shouldn't you be right? Wow. And I knew then that I had won. That <laughs> Success. Was that was a biggie for me. You know, I had won. And uh, on top of this, as I say, I had finally sold a story to my favorite magazine. Well, that's quite an interesting story, Gene. Now, tell me, what do you think that... Uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction means to the science fiction and fantasy community? I think it means a lot more than most people realize. I, I don't think that the science fiction community understands how important uh, the print magazines in general are and above all the others, frankly, uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction is. Uh, this is a, a keystone in uh, the science fiction subculture, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, if it breaks, we're going to understand 
just how important it is. Uh, I hope that it doesn't break. I hope that it never cracks. Uh, let let me say two things here to that either of them or both of them may make the point. Uh, the first is that when I teach classes in uh, writing science fiction and fantasy, as I do occasionally, I ask the members of the class uh, whether they subscribe to the science fiction magazines, what magazines they do subscribe to, and so on. And all too often, although not always, I get very few hands or none, you know? Mm -hmm. They are not reading any of the magazines. They are reading books uh, that they get from the bookstore or they buy on Amazon or whatever, but as far as reading analog or Asimov's or fantasy and science fiction or any other magazine that you want to stick in there, uh, no. No, they don't subscribe and they don't read it. It's and like... I then explain to them in detail and at length what fools they are. And I don't know if it does any good. I, I think in a few cases it may do some good. This is, is illustrative, I think, illustrative, pardon me, of what I'm talking about, the, the general obliviousness. Uh, I tell them, look, these are the markets for you as beginning writers, and these markets are in trouble, and you are not lifting a damn finger to help them. If they go, where are you going to publish your stories? How are you going to break in when you can't break in with short stories? You think you can write a novel and sell a novel. Well, good luck to you because you're going to have a horrible time even getting anybody to look at your manuscript. And uh, they just kind of gape at me, you know. It's just rather like talking to fish in the fish market, you know. <laughs> the fish that are lying on the ice there is what I'm talking about. Uh, and the other thing that uh, hardly anybody seems to know or pay much attention to. C.S. Lewis was a subscriber to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Hmm. I never knew that. that uh -huh. And that, that, makes that, uh, that changes things, doesn't it? That, uh, that tells you something mm -hmm. right there. And we ought to be listening, and we're not. We're, we're like people who eat quiche but never have had a couple of eggs sunny side up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Or, or like my kids were about the time that I was given a rosemary that checked for school clothes. You know, they eat meat and they eat eggs, and they know they come from the supermarket. <laughs> but where the supermarket gets them, they have no idea. Absolutely not. Now, um, is there anything that you'd like to say to Gordon Van Gelder in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction on this, the occasion of their 60th anniversary? I mean, we ought to be giving them, I guess, a gold, is it a gold ring? <laughs> no, the 50th is the golden anniversary. I don't know what 60th is. Uh, I need to, to look out. We'll be there in about seven years, my wife and I. Um, I the only thing that I would say to him is where were you at ReaderCon? 
I was at ReaderCon. I know you were at ReaderCon. And I never laid eyes on you. How come you're not making a bigger personal splash uh, at a key convention like that? Uh, why weren't you up there and talking and doing stuff? Uh, not that I'm mad at you, but damn it, I missed you. I missed seeing you there. And the other thing I would say to him is, Thank you again for the suggestions you gave me on Memorari. Uh, because despite our fight about the baseball stuff, despite that, uh, a lot of those suggestions were very, very valuable indeed. I think the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and Gordon Van Gelder are very, very valuable indeed. I agree. I've been speaking with Gene Wolfe. He's the author of Soldier of Sidon. Latro in the Mist, the best of Gene Wolfe, and an evil guest among with many other classics of the genre. Thank you for speaking with me, Gene. You're very, very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Charles DeLint is the author of many novels, including The Onion Girl, Some Place to Be Flying, Spirits in the Wires, and The Mystery of Grace. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Hey, my pleasure. Charles, I got to ask you first, when was the first time you ever saw a copy of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction? You know, I I can't remember. Um, Must have been in the 60s uh, on a newsstand, and uh, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure it either had a heroic, like, you know, like a Conan-type character on the cover, or it was a Thomas Burnett Swan story. Uh, either one of those would have attracted me at the time. Well, uh, tell me, now, um, here you are back in the 1960s picking up your first copy. Uh, tell me a little bit about the journey from picking up that first copy to the way you felt when you were first published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and, and how that felt to you as a writer. Um. I have to, you know, no, no, no disrespect to Christine Catherine Rush, who was the editor at the time when I, I sold my story, but I really would have liked to have had to sold a story to Ed Furman. <laughs> you know, just because just cause. it's like, you know, if you're going to open for the Beatles, it, 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 it can't just be Paul and Ringo, you know what I mean? It, you'd want it, all four of them. Um, that said, it was still, still very exciting. Um, I was looking over my records, and uh, it looks like my first story there was in uh, February 1992. It was called The Graceless Child. But I think it was a reprint. So my, probably my first original story was a couple months later, the October-November issue, a story called Bridge or Bridges. Well, I... I, I and very exciting. Very, you know, you, you kind of even, by that point, I'd had novels out and stuff, but you still kind of feel like you're, like you kind of made it, you know? <laughs> uh, that, that's, a, that's a feeling that, that echoes what I've heard from a lot of people I've been talking to today. Now, can you tell me, um, what do you think the magazine of fantasy and science fiction means to the science fiction and fantasy community? Um, you know, it's uh, one of the, the, the sort of the, the main the main things of, of like it used to be anyway for for this field was the short story. Um, you know, many of us cut our teeth writing them, and many of us started reading stories. You know, the, 
the field from the short stories from the pulp magazines, from you know Asimov and FNSF and Amazing and things like that. And um, just that's why I, I think that's where, where things get tried out. You know, before they sort of happen in novels, mm-hmm. you'll see them in, in in the short story markets first. I know that myself when I'm writing, uh, I'll be much more adventurous in a in a short story because uh, it's not as big a. Uh, I don't, I'm not taking as much time as it would take to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Like, you take more chances, because if it doesn't work out, you only lost a couple of weeks' work instead of a year's. It's a date, not a marriage. Wait, pardon? It's a date, not a marriage. I guess kind of, yeah, but it, but <laughs> I think you become really, really loyal. I mean, I certainly did. You know, mm-hmm. very loyal to those magazines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes. Would pick them up. And, and I mean, this was pre-internet, of course, so, you know, the, the, the letters pages were always, you know, kind of lively as well. I'm trying to remember if... If those picture magazines had a lot, I, I get kind of mixed up sometimes between the newsstand magazines and the zines that were out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just remember the, that whole community. You know, you'd recognize people who had never written a single story, but you knew them because they were constantly writing in, in letter columns. So there was just a, a bit, I think it just helped helped sort of cement the community. Now you're not just a, a fiction writer for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. You're you're also a, a, a book critic, and, and in that guys you. Uh, have a wield a fairly significant, a huge influence on on, on the genre of fa- fantasy and science fiction. So tell me about being a book critic, and and you know, when did you first get this gig, and when you were offered the job, or when you got it after uh, begging and pleading? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, how did you feel? Well, um, uh, this was uh, Orson Scott Card had a column in, in FNSF. I don't know how long it ran. Uh, but it was called, it was books to look for, mm-hmm. and uh, when he was going away, the the editor Tom McGuinness, I think it was Christine again, Christine Catherine Rush asked me if I would uh, take over that column. I'd been doing you know reviews and stuff and zines for years, uh, and it was very exciting for me. Uh, you know, I I'm the kind of guy that uh, I love music and I love books and I love shooting my mouth off about either one of them, and uh, so it was a, it was a great forum for me. Um, I, I tend to, to tend to try to cover stuff in it that I don't see in the other magazines necessarily or the other review areas mm-hmm. just because uh, just because they're not being covered. You know, and I'm, I'm also like, for instance, a big comic book fan, and so I'll often cover like graphic novels and things in there. Uh, I love art, and uh, I'll, I'll cover art books. I think Locus was pretty much the only place you could see reviews on art books. Um, just, just a, you know, a broad sort of spectrum. And it's just, to me, I don't consider myself a critic. I consider myself more a reviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, because I only have so little space, I don't really focus very much on negative reviews. I don't see any point mm. um, for two reasons. One, why why give it more, you know, more space? If it was bad in the first place, there's no point in giving it more press. And secondly, I don't want to have to read like a bad book all the way through. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a, a real <laughs> uh, that's a gating item. I mean, it, when you've been reading, I think for as long as, as people like you and I have been reading, mm-hmm. you can really tell pretty quickly that what, whether or not you're going to like a book. It doesn't take very long to figure That's that right. stuff out. And, and you, know, you know, everyone's got uh, budgetary concerns, you know, and I want to make sure that I'm pointing people towards, you know, uh, books that I feel that their money be will be well worth spent on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, that, and that said, people will, will you know, if, if people read the magazine, if you read a columnist for a long time, you get an idea of where they're at. Mm. And so you, if they... If they say something's great and tell you why, um, you'll know. If you hate their kind of stuff, you'll know that that's <laughs> a book to avoid, uh, yeah. and uh, you know that kind of thing. So it, 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 I just think it's a. I just like, like I said, I like shooting my mouth off about things I like. So. 
Well, it interests me that I think that you you really have uh, one of the things that your reviews echo the kind of eclectic and literary taste I think that you find in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And when I say eclectic and literary, I, I still one of the things that both you and the magazine really uh, cleave to is a sense of act. No matter how literary, no matter how eclectic, there's still a real sense that this is you know fiction from for the genre. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, you know, they, it's interesting having watched it go through the three, through the three editors, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. I have to just uh, go back to, just to Gordon just for a moment. Mm-hmm. I was aware of Gordon's work for years at St. Martin's Press, and, uh, you know, he always had, like, exquisite taste in books, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't have the hands-on knowledge in terms of, like, what it was like to be edited by him in those books, uh, but they always read really well as well. So when he took over the magazine and uh, I started working with him, he was editing my columns. You know, it was just uh, it, was, it was a huge delight for me because you know, a I'd, I'd admired his work for so long, and b he's like so damn good at his job. Mm. I mean, he just makes you look so good. <laughs> now, is there anything that you'd like to say to Gordon Van Gelder in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction on the occasion of their 60th anniversary? Well, I'm just I'm just so pleased that they're still here. You know, I'm so pleased. I think uh, Gordon's done a terrific job with the magazine. Um, it's still like, one of the best reads um, around, um, and I just hope it's going to be here for many, many more years to come. I've been speaking with Charles DeLint. He's the author of The Mystery of Grace, The Onion Girl, and many other genre favorites. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Hey, no problem. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.